1: It'd been rumored all week that the Washington Redskins were going to be the subject of a major story, and it's going to take me a long time. By the way, as I said in my opening sentence, the Washington Redskins, the Washington to be named a later team, uh, the NFL franchise in our nation's capital, uh, was hit with a Washington Post story alleging sexual harassment by 15 different women um, and it involved a bunch of different men Uh, two of the guys a former ceo and a former president of business operations they left in 2015 and 2018 and then there are three executives who uh, left the uh, organization after the post started its reporting and began to ask questions based on the allegations of these women Uh, and that was a senior vice president, a director of pro personnel, and the assistant director of pro personnel. Uh, And one of those guys, of course, was the voice of the Washington team. So uh, the big question here coming out of this investigation is uh, there's a lot to dive into, frankly. Um, And you may remember that in my prior life as a lawyer, I used to investigate sexual harassment on behalf of organizations and write up reports after talking internally with the employees. So I'm pretty well versed in the next step in this situation, which is the uh, Daniel Snyder's team, the, the, the team that used to be known as the Redskins, has hired a, uh, a, a lawyer to conduct an internal investigation and determine what actually has been going on, what practices need to be uh, altered, And what the story is here and should be going forward. So the biggest, uh, I would say, story is what's going to happen with Dan Snyder. Playing this forward. Uh, Because many people have, uh, have hoped for a long time that Dan Snyder would be forced to sell the team or would be forced out. And my read, based on having read this story, is that there's not enough here to force Dan Snyder out. Now... I could be wrong, and we could be in an era where the NFL is trying to make a statement, but I think you need to go back and look at the precedents that are out there right now, and uh, the easiest precedent to point to, I would say, in the NFL is Jerry Richardson, the former owner of the Carolina Panthers, who was effectively forced to sell the team uh, after allegations of sexual harassment. The difference there is... Richardson himself was named as one of the perpetrators of the sexual harassment and the culture directly based on his behavior. And so he was forced out as a result of that story because his own personal behavior was integral to the story. Here, it doesn't appear, at least to me, that there is enough allegation of impropriety on behalf of Dan Snyder where the NFL would be able to force uh, Snyder to sell the franchise. Now, there are minority owners of the Washington Redskins, uh, erstwhile Washington Redskins, who appear to want out, uh, but there's no indication that Dan Snyder could be forced out so far. Now, things could change. The NFL could decide to take an incredibly aggressive tack here, but I think the likelihood is that Dan Snyder, if the NFL tried to force him out, would file a lawsuit, and that lawsuit would go on for a substantial period of time. And I'm not sure that the NFL would have the authority to force Dan Snyder out based on the situation that exists inside of his franchise. And Dan Snyder could point to a lot of other improprieties that have gone on among NFL owners, As evidence for why he hasn't, his standard of behavior has not risen to that level, and that could force the NFL to air a lot of dirty laundry involving their team. So, my read, uh, as it stands uh, this morning, in the day after this story broke late in the afternoon, is that Dan Snyder will survive and uh, there likely will be some changes that are necessary to be made to avoid any behavior like this from any other executives at the team going forward, and hopefully to allow everyone who works there to feel like they work in a safe place and that they're not incredibly uh, harassed based on working at that particular location. The culture could be forced to change. And there are other stories like these that have come out, certainly the Dallas Mavericks have had their issues with Mark Cuban, as I mentioned, and in a different uh, sport, uh, the Jerry Richardson situation, and uh, and likely this is a, a situation that really a stronger HR department needs to exist, and I would imagine that is one of the changes that Dan Snyder will implement uh, going forward as uh, this scenario continues to play out. Now, the other aspect of this story that I would say is at least worth considering is there were way more allegations of impropriety out there about the Redskins, about the Washington football franchise, than actually appeared in this article. So a part of me wonders what in the world was going on with the reporting here. Did the the Washington team decide to try to leak a lot of scandalous details that were not actually involved in this story in a way that when the story finally landed – many people who had been paying attention to all the rumors would say, oh, there wasn't as much here as I anticipated there might be. Now, we didn't talk about this story on the radio show, even though it was being hinted about in uh, in Twitter and everything else. Frankly, because I didn't know anything about it. And I try to avoid talking about things that haven't happened yet if I'm not very aware personally of the fact that they exist. And that was the case here. Uh, and so... I don't think it was a real sterling look in general for Twitter to be talking, as many people on Twitter as were, about this story before it actually came out because many of the things that people were talking about, the Redskins were the number one trending topic on uh, Thursday, even before this story came out because there were so many different uh, allegations that were floating out there, the vast majority of which were not actually included in this story. Now, maybe there are going to be other future stories that are written, or maybe this was a kind of disinformation campaign designed to get out information that sounded a lot worse than it actually was uh, when it came out. And it was bad. Make no mistake about it. The Redskins are uh, in a rough spot. And I think this is one reason why the team's name got changed. And I think this is one reason why all the pressure got ratcheted up on Daniel Snyder. And he thought to himself, well, I can't be fighting about whether or not the team name should change while simultaneously we're dealing with this big sexual harassment allegation that has now come out. So that is a big story that certainly is going to be much talked about this morning uh, across the entire country. But I think I basically nailed all of the different aspects of it right there. The other big story that I believe is going to be talked about a lot, and I'm actually, frankly, more interested in this story going forward because it seems to me like it's a more uh, a more challenging story to figure out what's going to happen is the NCAA came out with some guidelines for how college football could be played. And uh, there are a lot of details in that. But what I would start with here is I still believe that if all of these other leagues are going to be playing, I want you to think about all the different sports that are going to be taking place by late July or early August. Just listen to this list. Either training camp will be going on or the sports will already be occurring. All right? Uh, This is a pretty exhaustive list, so listen along. Major League Baseball starts next week. The uh, NHL starts August 1st. NBA starts at the very end of July. NFL teams are theoretically going to start reporting uh, by next week and the week after to arrive, especially the rookies and everyone else. And by August 1st, in theory, everybody would be in training camp. MLS is already playing. The PGA is already underway. And in August, they will play the first major of the year the WNBA is playing the UFC is is underway and has been for a very long time the National Women's Soccer League the PBA Professional Bowlers Association the lacrosse league professional lacrosse league boxing NASCAR the Kentucky Derby is going to happen in right now September and also the Indy 500 now I'm sure that I have left some sports out of the mix there. But when I go through this list, that is one, two, three, 4, 5, 6, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 different level events that are all going on. Now, when I see all of these sports taking place and that they will be taking place either in July or August, I sit back and I say, How is it? that college football uniquely has become the one sport that it appears may end up being canceled. And so this, to me, is a very intriguing story to follow. And in particular, I'm going to just pretend that I am sitting here and we're having a discussion, and you can tweet me and share your arguments. But it seems to me that there are effectively three real arguments for why college football shouldn't take place this fall. And frankly, I don't think any of the three arguments are very good. And let me lay them out for you. The first one, and this is the one that you're going to hear from the most people, is that it's not safe. And when people say it's not safe, they mean both the game is not safe and it's not safe for the players. The game itself, if you heard Dr. Chow yesterday... He argued that the game of football itself, in his mind, was not likely, and he wrote this at OutKick, who's now an employee of OutKick, Dr. Chow is, at Pro Football Doc. He wrote on OutKick that, in his opinion, the game itself was unlikely to lead to the spread of the virus. In other words, even if a running back gets tackled by a linebacker, they're in close contact for a relatively short amount of time and he pointed out that, for instance, the Rudy Gobert uh, situation, Rudy Gobert tested positive, but none of the guys who had played against Rudy Gobert tested positive, despite the fact that they're all sweating and running into each other and everything else associated with it. So the game itself of football is not safe, right? There's lots of violence involved, there's lots of conflict, uh, there's lots of hitting, but the coronavirus is not necessarily adding to the level of lack of safety, all right? So one, there are two prongs to the not safe argument. One is you can't play the sport very safe. And by the way, in hour two, I want to get into Jason Whitlock's column that is going to be up uh, about his idea, at least uh, as he told me it was going to be up, we talked about it yesterday, uh, about his idea of why high school football needs to be played, but that would also factor in here. The second one is on the not safe prong, Well, the players aren't safe on a college campus. And this, to me, is one that is very, very easy to attack as an invalid argument. Because if the players aren't safe on a college campus, why would they be safer at home wherever they live? This argument doesn't make sense to me. Because the data would suggest that the best place a player could be is on a college campus with constant medical attention offered to him and readily available testing virtually at the drop of a hat. He's getting his temperature taken every day. He's getting testing done on a regular basis to ensure that there is not a coronavirus infection. And if there is an infection, it's getting caught super early, ideally, and then that player is able to be treated well and there's no concerns because they are on a campus and they have a really good medical situation so for everybody out there who's arguing college football isn't safe i don't think the game itself is unsafe based on what dr chow has said and i also certainly don't think the players themselves are unsafe okay so that's the first argument and i don't think it's a good one for why college football shouldn't exist the next argument is the players are not professionals and that's what maybe some of you are saying, well, the, the leagues that I all ran through, the 15 different leagues, those all involve adults making professional decisions to be involved in play. The situation, however, is anyone who doesn't want to play can decide not to play, remain on college scholarship and likely get a red shirt year for medical reasons and be able to come back theoretically next year in the hopes that by then hopefully we will have a vaccine and it will be effective and nobody will have to worry about the coronavirus anymore. But so the players, while they're not professionals, I think if you polled them based on coaches and administrators that I am talking with, all the college athletes want to play their sports this fall. It doesn't matter what the sport is, they all want to take the field and play because... They are college kids, and the vast majority of them, I should say. Not all, but whenever I talk, they're like, oh, 99% of our players want to take the field. Well, if somebody's mom and dad or the player himself or herself doesn't feel good about playing sports in the fall, then they don't have to. So there's no compulsion here. Nobody is saying, hey, you have to play or else there's going to be serious consequences. So the not professionals argument to me is not a good one because kids are voluntarily deciding, hey, I want to play. I don't want to have to sit out potentially an entire season. And then the third one is, well, what about other people? Because now there's an acknowledgement of what I've been telling you for a while, which is the danger to college kids is limited when it comes to the coronavirus. College kids are more likely to be struck by lightning. They're more likely to be murdered. They are more likely to drown. They are more likely to die of an alcohol-related incident. They are more likely to die driving to a college campus than they are from the coronavirus. And so, the question that is out there, which I think is a good one, is... Okay, let's not even talk about the college kids. What about older people that they might come into contact with on a college campus? Well, first of all, that argument applies similarly if they're off campus, right? So if they're not on campus, they still could come into contact with older people, and arguably, they may be more likely to come into contact with older people because on a college campus, they're not living with older people, they might be living with a grandpa or a grandma or an older aunt or uncle in their home where they are living when they are off campus. And that is actually where most of the coronavirus is spreading is inside of households in a lot of close contact. So this idea that on a college campus there's going to be more spread doesn't necessarily, uh, to me, fit the data because the young person could just as easily be spreading it off the campus as they do on campus. And in fact, it's easier for older people, coaches, teachers, janitors, all of those people theoretically could be easier able to stay away from the younger kids on a campus in a way that might not be able to occur when the players are back home. So I don't buy into any of the three major arguments that you are probably hearing from people who think college football shouldn't happen. Again, to me, there are three primary arguments. It's not safe for them. And the not safe is it's not safe for the players to be on campus. It's not safe for the game to be played. Uh, I don't think either of those are true based on the data that's out there. They're not professionals, and they shouldn't be forced to play. Well, that's not happening. They are choosing to play. If they don't want to play, they can stay on scholarship, they can take a medical redshirt season, and they can theoretically come back next year in the hopes that a vaccine will exist by then. And what about everybody else? They're likely, in my opinion, to be in more close contact with older people off of campus than they are on campus. When you actually look at all of the arguments out there, to me... Everything ties in here and college kids should be on campus and there is a lot of evidence of why college football should be able to play just like Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, MLS, PGA, WNBA, UFC, NWSL, PBA, Boxing, NASCAR, Kentucky Derby, Indy 500, and the professional lacrosse league are all taking place all right when we come back we're going to talk about some of the challenges of the bubble environment in general in particular related to zion who just had to leave this is outkick the coverage with clay travis By the way, excited by the response that I saw yesterday uh, from uh, the addition of Dr. David Chow at Pro Football Doc on Twitter. He uh, is going to be, I think, a tremendous addition for us at OutKick. And many of you reacted very, very favorably uh, to his addition. And so uh, I appreciate all that feedback we got both for for me and for him uh, for his addition. Uh, But Ryan glass one of the writers at OutKick, going to join us in hour two. And then Shannon Spake is going to join us in the third hour to talk about uh, everything going on in NASCAR and more. Uh, But uh, in particular, I wanted to hit on one of the challenges that I think is out there right now uh, in the world of uh, athletics and activism. You saw, and we'll talk about this some with Ryan uh, next hour, but you saw how everything blew up on the NBA basically in the last week over their decision to allow some statements on the back of their Jersey and not all statements. And in particular how their willingness to take money from a communist Chinese government, billions of dollars that is putting people in concentration camps uh, and is making the decision to not allow basic human rights. They are pulling books. Uh, they are book banning. All of these things are substantial and uh, impactful and, in a big way and so as I kind of work through this process athletes have to understand that when you decide to get active whether you are Malcolm Jenkins or LeBron James or uh, you're a coach like Steve Kerr in these hyper partisan times people are going to look around and they're going to say okay wait a minute are you being consistent in what you are saying and if you aren't you are going to get absolutely roasted. And that happened to Dwayne Wade this week. I don't know how many of you saw it, and we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but there was a uh, controversy involving Nick Cannon and anti-Semitic comments that he made on a podcast, and Viacom ended up having to fire him because he initially refused to apologize for the comments that he made. Um, And Dwayne Wade tweeted out that he supported... Nick Cannon and this was just a big mess in particular uh what Dwayne Wade tweeted and that to me was evidence of Dwayne Wade not understanding that because all of the statements he's making now he's going to be treated like a politician and I don't think athletes have realized the standard that they are being held to now If you are going to be incredibly politically active in your statements, like Malcolm Jenkins has been, like Dwayne Wade has been, then people are going to look to you to maintain consistency when it comes to that. So Dwayne Wade has since apologized, but after Nick Cannon got fired for making anti-Semitic comments, yesterday uh, Dwayne Wade, I think well, maybe it was Wednesday, I guess, Wednesday, Dwayne Wade said, we are with you, fist, keep leading. And uh, it's, it's like, do you not realize what the standard is that you have stepped into? And I think, frankly, a lot of athletes don't realize that. And so they want the positive attention on social media that comes when they say things that are very favorably received by people who agree with them. But they're not prepared for the scrutiny that their political beliefs are then going to come under. And I think about this with Malcolm Jenkins, who is one of the leaders of the NFL social justice community. And he said about Deshaun Jackson's anti-Semitic comments that they were a distraction and that anti-Semitism wasn't his problem. And I'm like, I'm sitting around saying, wait a minute. And credit to Kareem Abdul Jabbar, who wrote a great piece analyzing this and saying, wait a minute. If we're going to argue that racism is an incredible ill that needs to be rid from society, which I think is an argument that should be made, then we have to realize, and this is what Kareem Abdul Jabbar said Kareem Abdul Jabbar said, we have to realize that we can't be selective in what racism we decide is unacceptable. So Malcolm Jenkins can't say, hey, uh, anti-Semitism is not my problem, and it's a distraction, because when you actually say that, you are undermining your pursuit of racial justice and equality. You have to make sure that your standard is not just focused on people who look like you you have to make sure that you are in favor of eliminating all injustice in the country and you have to be able to willing to stand up and call it out when you see it even if sometimes it is people that you would otherwise consider to be an ally and that's where these situations become challenging Because it's easy to blame somebody that isn't around you or you feel like isn't like you. What becomes a challenge and what we should all aspire to do is to treat everyone equally, not just people that we happen to focus on in a social justice warrior movement. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And racism or discriminatory treatment against anybody should be equally condemned by athletes, coaches, and owners, not just racism against black people, but anti-Semitism is, in fact, the problem of all of us, and it should be condemned equally by all of us as well. And right now, I'm not seeing that from pro athletes, and it's a shame. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. One of the interesting things about uh the, the NFL contracts that got done right before the uh right before the deadline of the franchise tag were first of all it's kind of a little bit crazy that Dak and the Cowboys wanted to potentially get a deal done and then couldn't quite agree to get a deal done because they took it right up to the last possible moment uh and that in and of itself is kind of crazy like I understand the purpose of a deadline the only purpose of a deadline is to know when you have to get something done. So if they got that close to getting an extension done and it didn't actually happen, how in the world is that possible when you have as many highly paid uh, paid people involved as you could? And we talked some about the, uh, about the Derrick Henry deal and why even though there have been a lot of deals that didn't make a lot of sense, and we talked about this some um, at the uh at the start of the hour uh the Derrick Henry deal looking at the larger context of running back deals and how that one works out and who's going to be the winner or the loser of that deal it's kind of amazing to think about Miles Garrett because this is a guy who has gone through an incredible trajectory over the course of what the last like i mean we've all kind of gone through let's be honest and an incredible trajectory Since back in, I believe it was November on that Thursday night football game when Miles Garrett hit uh, Mason Rudolph in the head and lost the rest of his season. And if you remember that play happening, what was kind of unique about it uh, was it was so late in the game, I'd already turned off the television. Like I turned off the television and then I was rolled over, I was going to go to bed. I was down, I was taking that Friday off, which is rare because I was down in the Florida Keys. And I was going to be doing a wedding, so I was uh, I was marrying two people, uh, a friend of mine, Lori, who used to work with me at Outkick, and her uh, and her now husband, um, uh, and so uh, Bryce. And I was about to do their wedding, and so I was like, "Oh, I want to be rested up. We got to drive down the rest of the way, the Florida Keys tomorrow. Turn over, turn off the television. I literally turned off the television with like one minute left." Because there was no uncertainty as to whether the over-under was going to hit. The, the, the betting line was already uh, in, the, in the books. And so I was like, ah, there's nothing else going to happen. I literally remember thinking, ah, oh, there's only a minute left in this game. Nothing's going to happen. And or whatever it was. And I turned it off. And then immediately after I turned it off, I roll over to go to sleep. And my phone blows up. And I'm like, oh my God, what happened? And I put it back on in time to see all the craziness that was ensuing. But I missed it live. Well, if you've ever questioned the value of a player and how all that matters is his actual talent, Miles Garrett seems to be a pretty good dude overall. Smart guy, uh, has relatively, uh, obviously, really performed at a high level when he's been on the field for the Browns. Seemed to be playing angry last year. Uh, Basically, if you look at the trajectory of his entire season, I don't know what exactly was going on. But, Dub, you hit me with what I thought was a pretty funny stat. Based on the contract that he signed and the fine that he had to pay to Mason Rudolph, you sent me – how many times could he have hit Mason Rudolph in the head?
0: Yeah, so for that action that he took on that Thursday night game, he got fined $45,623, and his uh, extension, his new deal, is worth $125 million. So that would mean, uh, if he so chooses, they do play twice a year. I don't know how many more times he's going to see Mason Rudolph back there. But if he wanted to, he could hit Mason Rudolph in the head with a helmet 2,739 more times, and he would still have the money to pay that fine.
1: <laughs> What's amazing about this is people were like, "Oh, the you know, the, some of the most aggressive reactions were, oh, the Browns have to release him. There's no way they can stand by him now. And the dude just got the most, I think it's the most guaranteed money in the history of any player off the, on the defensive side of the ball in all of the NFL. So you're talking about a guy who went from a pariah, you know, everybody's angry at him. Oh my God, how in the world did you decide to hit somebody in the helmet? Remember, he made the allegation, oh, well, he said something racist to me, but he didn't make that allegation until he was in the middle of getting his appeal filed. All of that process played itself out. And it's amazing the trajectory that he has covered in the space of, you know, since November, mid-November when he did that, to now becoming the highest paid player in the history of the NFL. uh, That is a perfect sign of how much talent matters. This is Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis. We are joined now by Shannon Spake at Shannon Spake on Twitter. And uh, there have been a lot of interesting NASCAR stories. I've said before, I don't know that we've ever talked more NASCAR. In fact, I'm certain that we haven't. Uh, So at least that's a positive in terms of all the attention that's been going on. Uh, But Shannon, I I thought this was actually an underplayed story. I watched Wednesday night at Bristol because I was curious what it was going to look like and sound like to have fans back. And I actually thought it was kind of underplayed, given the fact that we haven't had big fans present, uh, big crowds like this. I know NASCAR had a small amount in Florida, and they had people in Talladega, but this felt a lot more like a return to some semblance of normalcy, and I thought there was a little bit of a less attention paid to it than maybe I would have anticipated.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you, Clay. Like I I thought it was really cool. I could definitely hear the fans in the stands. You know, we have something called the fan vote. A driver gets voted into the all-star race who doesn't transfer via the Open, and that was Clint Boyer. And to hear the fans cheering for him, and even when we did the driver intros, which usually at our all-star event, they're over the top, right? I mean, the, the guys are coming on a stage, there's fireworks going off everywhere. So obviously we had to do it very different, but you still could really sense the fans. And I think there was only like twenty to 25,000 people there, and that's a $100,000 $100,000 a 100,000 fan venue. So I absolutely think it was cool to hear the fans, and I think it made a big difference. I don't necessarily know if it was underplayed. I heard your interview the other day with Greg Sankey, and I mean, he he said he was watching it, right? So I think that there were a lot of eyes on it and a lot of people watching to see how it went down. And certainly there were a lot of precautions taken. We spoke with um, the, the, the GM at Bristol Motor Speedway and, you know, there was social distancing. There was no touch points. There was a lot of stuff, but it was great to see fans. And I think from the very beginning, we've been talking about this, right? NASCAR was the first to get back on track. NASCAR has dealt with one of its, one of its players slash athletes having COVID-19 and how they dealt with that. Uh, So I think that, that we, I, I'm proud that we've kind of set the model, I think moving forward. And I know that there's a lot of people watching how we've done it.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. And would you like, so you're in a unique position because you're on race up and you obviously cover NASCAR closely. So sometimes it can be hard when you're like incredibly close to something that you're involved in to analyze it. But it seems to me like NASCAR in general, the they've had a lot of storylines, and uh, you know from the Confederate flag to the noose mm-hmm. to coming back to uh, I think it was Jimmy Johnson testing positive and then mm-hmm. almost immediately beating it beating that story uh, and being back to racing. What would you assess? How would how do you think NASCAR in general would grade themselves if they were giving them a, themselves a letter grade on the return to racing since it's come back?
2: I mean, there's, there's been, been so many different
1: twisted turns, right?
2: No kidding, Clay. I mean, there's been so much. Even well, like, I mean, I even when
1: they were doing the uh, the, the eye racing, thing. there were a lot of eye racing stories. <laughs>
2: And you ask yourself, is it because we're not talking? No, I don't think so. I think our stories were very mainstream and very, like, across the board, not just NASCAR-centric. Because I do understand that NASCAR can be sort of a a niche sport, right? I mean, like, something that that, that only the fans watch and and maybe people don't tune in. My I just think I I would give it a very high grade. I don't necessarily know an A. I think A's are tough to give by, but a B plus because I do think, and I know that you know you we I've listened, I obviously listen to you all the time, and I know that there's been conversations about how banning the Confederate flag would affect the core group, but I do believe that we have so many new eyes on our sport because of some of the stands that we've taken, and um and I just I think we've done a good job managing some of those situations and, and kind of moving forward. It is nice for Wednesday night was nice to talk about racing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's been nice to talk about racing and to see those guys on the racetrack. And that's the release. That's why we're all in sports, right? I think is because the flag, the flag or the whistle to whistle is what we love so much. And to have that action on the track, no points, million bucks on the line, drivers just going at it at one of the best tracks in the country and, um, and fans in the stands. I think it was a really nice release.
1: The NFL has obviously uh, got to figure out exactly what the training camp protocols will be. Yeah. But I think it's fair to say for almost everybody out there listening to us right now, it would be shocking. I know the NFL's had its own scandal stories and everything else uh, in the offseason, as always happens. But it would be shocking at this point if they were not back on the field, right? Uh, what do you think those broadcasts will look like? Because you now have gotten to see NASCAR. You've gotten Mm -hmm. to see MLS. Next week, we'll get to see Major League Baseball. And there certainly have been a lot of soccer matches that have been put on from overseas without fans present. I think it's fair to say that there probably will not be very many fans present, if at all, Mm -hmm. in most venues. What do you think that will look like on television? Have you set back and started? Because the reason why I'm asking is NASCAR, I feel like the fans kind of matter, but it's so loud. It's kind of hard to really hear. I know you could hear him cheering at the end, which I thought was cool, when, uh, Mm -hmm. or or on Wednesday night when Chase Elliott won, which Mm -hmm. I thought was was pretty cool to be able to hear the crowd then. But it's not like it's basketball, right, like where a team makes a run and you can hear the crowd going the whole time or like Mm -hmm. football, right? So NASCAR, it feels like the crowd, while it's massive and cool – it's not necessarily integral to the overall viewer experience. Have you thought much about what the viewer experience is going to be like for football this fall?
2: No question. And I, it's funny, I, I, when I did my little interviews, my one-up, one-down interviews, I actually interviewed Adam Thielen. And, I mean, obviously the Minnesota Vikings have one of the most incredible pre-game festivities. Or yeah, that's right. Displays. There's, there's nothing like it. I mean, I, I, I barely can catch my breath when I'm in the middle of that and I have to do my report right after all of that goes down, uh, the, skull is just amazing. So I asked Adam dealing about that and I asked him if he thought like what he thought it was going to be like, I mean, this is an environment that he plays in and we always, you know, does, does the fan involvement, does it get these guys going? Does it get them the extra yard? Does it put a little, you know, a little more spring in their step to catch that pass? And he actually said that he thinks that with football, because they practice so much isolated with not a lot of people around. He did not think it would be as big of a deal as, as all of us are, are making it, right? And he thought it would be kind of just an easy transition for them to play uh, without a ton of people because of the fact that they practice isolated so much. And I thought that that was a really cool take because I thought for sure he would say how weird it would be, right? And, uh, and so when he said that, that, that kind of made me think. I think for me down there, certainly I – listen, when I'm in a, sta- when I'm in a stadium – and the, the fan involvement is is nothing it's eerie right like i'll key my mic and i'll tell my producer like i can't believe how quiet it is out here i've covered college games like that where you're just like i could literally scream across the field right now and you could hear me and then there are some environments where you're like this is awesome so i definitely think for me and maybe for for some people that are on the sidelines i think that we might feel it but i don't necessarily think the players are going to feel it i feel like they're such in a zone when they're on that field uh that they really they see ball get ball and and maybe don't um maybe block out some of the exterior
1: stuff. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, to think about how that will be played. And we'll see whether or not it happens in college. And I expect, I still think that college football will find a way to play. But the younger guys, yeah, me too. But the younger guys have such a momentum factor, you know, going on the road in college football and the college crowds and the fact that Everything can be going well, and then somebody throws an interception or somebody fumbles (laughs) and, like, things. The momentum seems like it plays such a role in college football. Like, the psychology of the crowd factors in in a big way. And I'm curious what that would feel like in these big cathedrals of gridiron excess if there's hardly anybody there and what the sound engineers will decide to do. Uh, But I have to tell you, you gave me a tip, I believe. You said I needed to watch Yellowstone.
2: Uh, uh, did I say Yellowstone? I definitely said The Last Kingdom. But uh, I, I thought have you heard said Yellowstone. I have heard Yellowstone's awesome. You haven't I watched Billions.
1: it? No. I thought no, you were, were one of the Billions. people who told me to watch Yellowstone.
2: I don't think so. I, I said the last Empire because your wife would love Utrid, which she would, and uh, and you would like it because it's like a it's like a smaller Game of Thrones. Where Game of Thrones, you're like, all right, I cannot remember how who, what is this person's name. Where like the last uh, Kingdom is is a little smaller. Uh, yeah, and, and then we're watching Billions right now, which we love as well. And then you and I have talked about um, obviously about Ozark. No, which, well, it's uh, funny.
1: Oh yeah, I love Ozark. But so it's funny. Yeah. Like we, my wife and I watched uh, have started watching. Uh, the uh, the Yellowstone show. And there's also, oh, it's phenomenal, but there's a really good looking uh, character on there. And so I told my wife, I was like, oh, Shannon said this show is going to be really good. And she was like, okay, that's cool. So I gave you all the credit. <laughs> because, but people have been telling me Yellowstone was good and it's kind of hard to track down cuz on the Paramount network yeah. and when we finished Ozark we were like okay what show what's the next show we want to watch together because like a lot of couples I mean she watches some shows and I watch some shows and we don't necessarily always overlap and I was like hey I think you know for people out there who don't know Yellowstone is a Kevin Costner is the star mm-hmm. and he's like he's got a Montana ranch and it's about he's got four kids and it's about trying to keep that ranch and the family Uh, It's been there 120 some odd years since the 1880s, and he's trying to pass it along to the next generation. Uh, And anyway, it's fantastic. Ozark is also great, and we overlap on billions. But I was just, I I was like, oh, I got to remember to give Shannon credit. So you should have just taken (laughs) credit for it and been like, yeah, it's a great show. I'm glad you listened to me.
2: I did see your list and Secession was amazing. The oh, it's writing so good. on that show so, was good. so good. I do want you, I was listening to your show yesterday and when you were talking about Dak Prescott being like the sixteenth best NFL quarterback. I would love for you to sit down and do your list. Cause I, I know you've done that in the past with like yeah. best to worst NFL teams. I would love to hear your list of who you think the fifteen guys in front of Dak Prescott are. Because I was thinking about it and I think that we overestimate how many Really good quarterbacks there are in the league right now. I think there's, and and the question for me, Clay, would be: Would it be body of work, or would it be 2020? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. You can look at someone you know and say oh my goodness like look at all he's done he led this team to the super bowl blah 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 but where is he right now in comparison to the other NFL quarterbacks
1: well you know what you've done that's a hell of a tease I, and so that go. will be that will be on the monday show i don't know what craziness <laughs> might happen on saturday or sunday but assuming that no it's, it's 2020 who knows assuming that there is no insanity that's a really good idea. Way to open the show on uh, on Monday morning. I will come in and I will break down my list of the current best quarterbacks in the NFL. Shannon Spake, always spectacular. Appreciate the time. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.
2: Oh, oh, oh.